I've got a question for you this morning that might seem a little strange, but I'll ask it anyway. When was the last time you felt like a speck? When you experienced a generous serving of your sense of smallness? I remember the first time as an adult visiting Colorado, driving west to Denver from central Nebraska, and there was some degree of disappointment because eastern Colorado looks a whole lot like all of Nebraska, just fields. And then all of a sudden, somehow, the Rocky Mountains sneak up on you. I don't know if you remember this. They they look like clouds at first. And you look closer. No, those are those are mountain peaks. Always made me feel really small. A few summers ago, we made a brief pit stop at the Grand Canyon, which was enough time at the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Makes me nervous. That's a long way to fall, if you were to fall. But you feel small when you're at the Grand Canyon. This past summer, we saw all of Denali from a distance. But knowing how tall that mountain is, it makes you feel small. Standing next to or near something as massive as these things makes you feel small, like a speck. But what about when it's so dark that you can't see any of these kinds of things, even if you were right next to them? What about when you look at the night sky? We have a pretty wonderful night sky here in Port Lyons at times. But to be honest, there's a little bit of light pollution. Several times, Amber and the girls and I have gotten into the car late at night because we've heard rumors that you could see the northern lights. So we drive to the airstrip. It's not quite as dark as you would think. It's pretty well lit up at night. And then we drive to the ferry dock. And it's pretty well lit up at night, too. And that's about as far as we can get away by car. Maybe we need some other kind of vehicle to get us further away. When we lived in Old Harbor, we drove out to the airstrip late one winter night to look at the stars. And by the time we got to the end of their runway, I would guess we were probably at least a mile from any kind of light source. And the night sky was like nothing I'd ever seen before, at least not in person. And the longer you looked, as your eyes adjusted, the more you could see. Stars from horizon to horizon, so many so far away that it looked like milky streaks across the sky. I've never experienced natural darkness like that. And at the same time, I've never seen heavenly bodies so bright. And when I think about that night, it makes sense to me why the ancient believes that the heavens were like a thing, a solid thing that had to be held back from the earth or held up from the earth. Because if all of what I saw that night came crashing down on me, I would be obliterated. And I think it's good to feel like that. Sometimes I think it's healthy to remember that we are specks, very special specks, as we'll see, but specks nonetheless. This feeling of smallness compared to greatness is really the beginning 
and the end of praise. We're going to look at Psalm 8 this morning. It's a psalm written in response to the night sky. And what I hope we see in this psalm are the purposes of praise, praise that results from understanding our unique place in the universe. Listen to Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Go ahead and pray with me. Father, thank you for this, the gift of this psalm to us, the gift of all of your word to us. Thank you that it reveals your will and your character. Lord, may we see it accurately, and might we give up similar praise of the majesty of your name in response to what we learned this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want you to see in this psalm are what I see as the three purposes of praise in Psalm 8. The three purposes of praise. The first purpose of praise in this psalm is that praise recognizes the majesty of our Creator King. This psalm is a psalm of praise. That's its type. In fact, it's the first psalm of praise we find, and it follows five psalms of lament. Appropriately, this psalm begins and ends with the proclamation of praise to the Lord, our Lord. The body of this psalm of praise will explore humanity's unique place and responsibility in relationship to the rest of creation, but it begins and ends with God, with the psalmist's heart, mind, and even his eyes on things infinitely greater than himself. We need to let this serve as a serious reminder to us of the source and the subject of our praise. Our praise, our worship, our songs, remember that the psalm is a song, must be about the Lord, must be about what he has done. I've joked before in the past that I have just enough seminary education to interpret and criticize modern worship music. And that's not what I want to do this morning. Songwriters, both ancient and modern, are prone to sacrifice a little bit of good theology for a really good rhyme. And while we can call that poetic license, what concerns me the most isn't one good rhyme that's bad theology, 
but an approach to worship that's unclear about who is being praised, God or us. We can sing about how desperately we need God or how desperately he needs us. One is worship. The other is not. We can sing about all the good things that God has done for us or about the good things we have done for him. One is worship. The other is not. But the psalmist here is not confused. God's name is majestic throughout the earth. And his name is more than just a title or just a way to identify him. His name reveals his character. It serves as a synonym for his reputation. In verses 1, or the first half of verse 1, and in verse 9, we have a bit of an awkward translation in English. If you look, you'll see that the word Lord occurs twice, but they're not the same word, Lord. The first in your Bible is probably in all caps, and the second one is not. The first is a translation of the Hebrew name for God, the personal name for God, Yahweh. Sometimes spelled just Y-H-W-H with the four consonants, sometimes spelled out Y-A-H-Y-E-H. I might have said that wrong. Y-A-H-W-E-H. And sometimes for, um, for a particular reason, you might see the word Jehovah. This is the name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses asks, whom shall I say sent me? God says, tell them I am sent, is sending you. It means I am who I am. Some say it means I will be who I will be. And some say it means something like I am there or I will be there. This name of God was a gift to Israel. It's his personal name. The second Lord is a term of honor and reverence. In one old English, as in British translation, it's translated governor. We don't use that word in the same way in America. I think something like king gets us closer to what's going on here. The point is that the psalmist is praising the God of Israel, the creator of all things, who is also his king. The I am is our king, and his name is majestic in all the earth. Majestic speaks to the impressive power of our Lord. His name, his character, his reputation are powerful, impressive, awe-inspiring, and beautiful. And this glorious fact, he says, is acknowledged in all the earth. Now, in some ways, this is an exaggeration. It's an exaggeration sort of geographically. The psalmist had a very limited understanding of what all the earth even means compared to what we know today. Believe it or not, as far as we can tell, neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament knows about the United States or Canada or Argentina. God did. God did. God does. The people did not. The psalmist also understands, given the many references to enemies throughout the psalms that we've even seen already, not everyone praises God. 
because of his character and because of his reputation. So it's a bit of an exaggeration. But at the same time, the Jews knew that God's covenant with their father Abraham included the promise to bless all nations through Israel. Now, Israel never achieved this completely. In fact, in some ways, they hardly achieved it at all. But Jesus does. In so many ways, we can see Jesus as the one who fulfills and completes Israel's history and Israel's destiny. So through the one perfectly righteous Jew, namely Jesus, all nations can be blessed. John gives us these beautiful images of every tribe and language, people and nation, singing praise to the Lamb of God in the book of Revelation. So there is a sense in which this reference to all the earth is, as C.S. Lewis put it, it's poetically true, but it's also literally true in Jesus. And is this not what praise is? We ascribe to God the character and the characteristics that he has revealed to us through his name and through his deeds. We sing it and we shout it for everyone to hear. I don't always remember this, but I like to think about it on Sundays. Every Sunday morning, allowing for differences in time zones, right? We join millions and millions of followers of Jesus singing of his majesty, people from every tribe and language, people and nation. Praise then must be about God and must be ascribed and directed to God. Our praise must not say, look at me. Look at what great things I have done and am doing for the Lord. But it must begin and end as this psalm does with our minds and hearts and eyes and voices heavenward. So praise recognizes the majesty of our creator king. The second purpose of praise is that praise resists opposition. Praise resists opposition. This idea only takes up one verse in the psalm. But it stands out to me as incredibly important. If our praise is like what we've just described, then it becomes one of our most effective weapons against opposition. The psalmist declares that God establishes a fortress from which to defeat his enemies, not through the strength and ability and power and wisdom and money of people, but through the praise of infants and toddlers. There's a little bit of a translation difficulty here. It's unclear whether the Lord has established praise or if he's established strength through the mouths of these little ones. But either way, the point is that what comes from the mouths of these little ones builds a defense, a stronghold, a fortress against God's enemies. What comes from the mouths of these sweet, innocent, adorable little children? Well, not much, generally. Late night crying and nasty milk vomit, from what I remember. And I'm very glad to be past that. Whatever can get forever stuck in the nooks and crannies of a car seat 
that's what comes out of the mouths of these little ones a lot of times. Remember that most of the time in the Bible, as it reflects the mindset of what we call the ancient world, references to children are not references to innocence and adorableness and sweetness. But children are helpless. They're vulnerable. They're dependent. They are needy. Listen to Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation of this verse. Nursing infants gurgle choruses about you. Toddlers shout the songs that drown out enemy talk and silence atheist babble. I like that. Helpless, vulnerable, dependent, needy. What would our praise be like? How much would our worship improve in its accuracy and its direction if we adopted that kind of mindset. In verse 2, the Lord is turning weakness into strength. He's using the recognition of helplessness, vulnerability, and dependence as his construction materials for a defense against his enemies. Ultimately, through the weakness turned to strength of those who know they need God, his enemies will be silenced. Through their praise, they will come to an end, and the victory will be accomplished, again, through the praise of God's people. This shouldn't be terribly surprising to us, especially in light of our knowledge from the New Testament, that the battle isn't really against flesh and blood. I don't think there's anything wrong with imagining that the praise of those who are needy, who recognize their dependence upon the Lord, builds up a kind of force field against evil, if you want to picture it that way, and especially against the evil one. When God's people come together, when we lift our prayers and our songs to heaven, it's my hope that everyone feels welcomed into God's presence, except for one person, our enemy, our adversary. I hope that there's never anything that goes on here or in our homes that he feels welcome to attend. I hope he hates what he hears coming from this little chapel. I hope he hates what he hears coming from the depths of our hearts, even when we're apart. Psalm 22.3 tells us that God inhabits the praises of his people. Our praise invites his presence the recognition of his power and strength from our posture of weakness and dependence is a protective force against evil and against opposition. So praise recognizes God's majesty. Praise is a resistance against opposition. And the final purpose of praise in this psalm is that it reorients us to our place in God's creation. Verses 3 through 8. The Lord has set his glory in the heavens. The heavens are the work of his fingers. He set in place the moon and the stars. What's the psalmist saying? He's saying this, As vast as the heavens are, as innumerable as the stars are, as faithful as the moon is to show up on time and in place every time, 
These are just little things that God manipulates and handles with his fingers and his hands. Compared to the glory and majesty of the Lord, even the heavens are just little things that he flicks out into space with his fingers. Compared to God, the heavens are a speck. The vastness of the universe submits to the creativity and to the gentle touch of God's fingertips. This gives us the proper perspective to make the next connection. Compared to the heavens, man is a speck. The heavens are a speck compared to God, and we're but a speck compared to the heavens. This brings us to the correct orientation for asking the question of verse 4. What is this frail human being that you remember him? What is this speck that you care for him? How infinitely far is this question from the attitude that God can't live without me? That it's such a privilege for him to know me. We must allow this reality that we are specks to reorient us. We are a speck of a speck. Or perhaps like that classic hymn of old, we're a flea on the speck, on the frog, on the bump, on the branch, on the log, in the hole, in the bottom of the sea. He is the I am. We are the I am only because you made me and because you sustain me. However, the humility that our sense of smallness or speckness should engender is only part of the reorientation that we need. And this brings us to verse 5. Why does he care for us? Why does he remember these specks? His loving care for us flows from the fact that he created us. Now, the Lord created a lot of things, but he created humans, men and women in his image. He made us a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings, and he crowned us with glory and with honor. We are truly and we are certainly creatures, but we are elevated creatures. And we're elevated not because of an inherent honor and glory in us, because of our wisdom and our ability, but because we derive our honor and glory from our Creator. It is his to give, and he has given it to us like a king might reach down and put a crown on someone's head. So humanity does have an elevated status, but it's derived from God, and this gift is a responsibility. Part of and perhaps the essence of being created in God's image is that we are his representatives. We are his ambassadors. The explanation of what the image of God means that resonates with me the most as I read scripture is that of a statue of a king. Statues have no inherent authority, but are put in place to represent the king's authority in places far away from his throne. 
And while God is certainly present everywhere, he has made us his image bearers, his representatives, his ambassadors to the rest of creation. And like our honor and glory, this authority is derived. It is his authority that we represent, that we reflect. And it's not an authority to do as we please with God's good creation. We rule reflecting the same love and care and benevolence with which God rules us. Verse 6 speaks to this ruling, and it also speaks of God putting everything under our feet. This means that God has chosen to use human agents to establish his divine authority on the earth. Again, we don't possess this authority because we created it or because we conquered something to get it. It's God who puts it under us. So how then do we respond? I think I have three ways that we can respond to these truths. Remember, we've said that praise recognizes the majesty of God. Praise resists the opposition. And praise reorients us to our place in creation. So how do we respond? First, be a speck. Be a speck. I want to encourage you to take the opportunity to experience and embrace your smallness or your speckness. This shouldn't be terribly difficult here if you just go outside. The next time you go for a walk or a hike or a hunt or a boat ride, look at the creation around you, not as something to be conquered, but as something that could conquer you in a heartbeat. Experience your sense of smallness. Be a speck. Second, bear his image. Consider that while you are only a speck, God has crowned you with glory and honor so that you might rule as his representatives. You were made to exercise his authority over the very things that could crush you. But ruling doesn't mean that we plunder or do violence in seeking our own good. We rule with compassion and with grace and with benevolence. Our authority as rulers, as his image bearers, derives from God and must reflect what he is like to the world around us. So bear his image, represent him, reflect him accurately, and take care of God's good creation. Use it for his good and his glory. Finally, in addition to being a speck and bearing his image, bind yourself to Jesus. There's a theme that's developed in these psalms we've looked at for the past few weeks. And I want you to experience and feel the weight of it. It's the weight of our inability, the weight of our failure. The psalmist seems to be setting up these ideals that we don't perfectly live up to. And I think this is a good way to think about it. It's a good thing to feel when we read these psalms. The reality is that we often do not rule over creation. Creation, though still an adequate testimony of the majesty of God, is fallen, and it's ruled by fallen men and women. And creation, as we know, as our story of our prayers tells, 
Creation often gets the best of us. We can decipher and manipulate an organism's genetic code, for good or for bad, but we still can't make it rain. We still can't make it stop raining. We can eradicate some deadly diseases, but all we can do when a tsunami is coming is blow a horn and head for higher ground. So if you feel like all of this is a great idea, but you can't imagine how it could ever be done, this ruling over creation, let me point to you, someone who has done it. Listen to the words of Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Speaking of Jesus here, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. Amen. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Bind yourself to this Jesus. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 29, speaking of the resurrection of the dead. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn... Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put his, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I'll just stop there with verse 26. Jesus conquers death by dying. Raised to life, he sits at the right hand of the Father where he reigns until the final enemy is destroyed. We all still bear God's image, but only as through shadows. The only way to be fully alive and fully empowered as God's representatives is to be in Christ and for Christ to be in you through faith. Pledging your loyalty and allegiance to Jesus does not limit your human experience, as many seem to believe. But following him restores and raises your human experience to what God originally intended. So be a speck, bear his image accurately, bind your life to Jesus do this, and your praise, like the psalmist, will begin and end with the majesty 
of our Creator and our King. Pray with me. Father, there's such a tension uh, between this reality that um, even on our own planet, um, there's a sense in which we're insignificant and compared to the rest of the universe that we can see, um, not even the word speck begins to, to explain our smallness compared to the rest of your creation. Yet at the other end, Lord, there is the reality that you have made us, that you fashioned mankind by your hand, that you breathed your breath, the breath of life into him, that we bear your image. Lord, I pray that our speckness would drive us to humility and the recognition that we bear your image would drive us to responsibility. That you would help us to live our lives in such a way by how we treat others, by how we treat your creation, that we would accurately reflect your love and your care, your compassion, your grace. And Father, we know that we will not do this perfectly, so we trust in Jesus who has done it perfectly, who rules and reigns now from heaven, and who will rule and reign someday on earth when he defeats the final enemy, death itself. Lord, may we be bound to him. Lord, may he be in us and may we be in him. Help us to do this. We need your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.